Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray, please, you'd help us to be humble before you, ready to listen to your word and ready to put it into practice. Amen. Well, I wonder what you'd look for in a leader, what you hope a leader will be, what you hope the next vicar of Christ Church will be. Do you look for someone who's got charisma, that sort of certain something that sets them out apart from the rest, a, a confidence maybe that they should have. Maybe a leader should be someone who gets results, someone who communicates well, maybe someone who's got a good sense of humour. What about their private life? Does it matter what that's like? Well, it seems like for national leaders that people don't seem to mind too much what, uh, what their private life is like, how many people they've been married to before, uh, whether there's a whole history of relationship car crashes in the past. What about church leaders? Well, this is where we need to turn to God's word to find out what the Lord wants in his church leaders. And that's where we turn to the book of Titus and to the list that has just been read for us. You see, Paul was writing to Titus to tell him what to look for when appointing church leaders or elders, as they're called here. And he gives a list. Now, there's a danger here that if you're not a church leader and you're not thinking of becoming a church leader, that you think, well, this isn't for me. I can go off and uh, make myself a cup of tea and uh, come back later. But actually what we find in this list is that the vast majority of things here are things that come up later on in the letter or elsewhere in the New Testament as things that all of us should be putting into practice. Yes, church leaders should have these things, but actually that's because they're to be role models for everyone. We should all be trying to live this kind of way. Now you might think, well, does this mean that as we go through this list, that those who are church leaders now, Bart, Anil, maybe others, think, well, we, we've got all this lot nicely sussed. We've got all this lot perfectly. Well, no, of course not. As you go through the list, it's a daunting list, isn't it? And I was reminded in my preparation as I listened to a talk on this that uh, actually this was written not so that people could assess themselves, but so that Titus could assess other people. You see, he wasn't to take this list, read it out in front of the whole church and say, who thinks that they fulfil all these criteria? No, this was for Titus to do the assessing, not for people to assess themselves. And that's a big help, because if Titus did that, if he read it out to the whole church, no one would come forward. And if they did, you'd question whether they really knew themselves well. So this is for others to do the assessing of whether people should become church leaders. Okay, so let's get into the list. Now, as we get into this list, what we see is that there's a lot here. There are a lot of things. And if we went into every single thing, we'd be here for a long time. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to group some things together and we just won't have time to cover everything on the list. But it's interesting where Paul says Titus should look first. Where's the first place he should look? The first place he should look is at the home. Have a look at verse 6. It says, an elder must be blameless. Well, now that doesn't mean sinless. It doesn't mean utterly perfect. Uh, Paul is expecting Titus to be able to appoint elders, but rather he's got to look for people who aren't going to bring the gospel into disrepute by their character or by their conduct. And then he gets into home life. He says, they must be the husband of but one wife. 
In other words, they've got to be faithful to their marriage vows. They don't have to be married. After all, if, if that was the criteria, then Jesus couldn't have been a church leader, which would be a bit silly, wouldn't it? But if they are married, they must be faithful. And what about their children? Well, it says a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, there's been much ink spilt on that. There's much debate about what that means. Is it talking about little children? And if so, when do little children stop being little children? And what's the belief that they've got to have? Does that mean they, they've got to have faith, genuine faith in Jesus? Most, uh, I think, seem to take that as being linked to what follows and would say that it should be that they should be faithful. In other words, faithful to their parents. And so it goes with not being open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. In other words, that their children should be those who respect and obey their parents. Uh, and that's probably at least what, what that's going to mean. Does that mean that uh, church leaders' children should never be rude, should never answer back, or their parents have got to stop being church leaders? Well, no, I don't think so. Uh, a friend of mine, when he was uh, first uh, vicar of a, a new church, first Sunday he was there, his toddler child went up into the pulpit and started throwing kneelers at people. Well, should those church wardens have taken that vicar outside and said, you've got to stop being a vicar, your, your child is wild and disobedient? No, I don't think they should, and they didn't. But actually, in general, uh, church leaders, children, I think probably should be respectful and obedient to their parents. Is that all that that word believe means? I think it might mean a bit more than that. But this is where I, I might be on shaky ground. But let me put it like this. Wouldn't it be weird if a church leader's children knew nothing of the faith? If in Sunday school um, uh, the hands were going up for who's the person who died on the cross to save us from our sins, and, except the church leader's children had no idea, the, um, I don't know, Easter Bunny. Uh, and wouldn't it be weird if church leader's children were never in church? And wouldn't you expect that, well, when they're little children, that they'd kind of go with what their parents are teaching them, that they would go with, you know, the, the gospel and, and, uh, and agree with it? And maybe that's what that's talking about. Sadly, children do grow up and, and go away from the faith. But I wonder whether that's what that's talking about, but I, I may be on shaky ground there. Uh, therefore, I would summarise it like this. They need to be faithful to their spouse and trying to be a good parent, trying to bring their children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Well, even in that, we, we kind of feel very inadequate and we need the Lord's help in that. But are we trying to do it? Well, it goes from the home, and then Paul says, you've got to look at relationships with others. Well, now, there are various things in the verses about relationships with other people. I'm picking out a couple of things. First, verse 7, it says, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, same word as before, not overbearing. In other words, in their relationships with people, they shouldn't be arrogant People who blast their plans and their agendas through without thinking of other people. But rather, verse 8, if you look down and skip down, it says, rather he must be hospitable. 
Now that's practical love for other people. I, w I wonder what you think of when you think of someone as being hospitable. That doesn't mean that they've got to be people who are fantastic at putting on dinner parties. It's not like in the interview process for the next Vicar of Christchurch, all of a sudden halfway through the interview they'll whip off a cloth from a table and produce a camping stove and some eggs and say, now make a souffle, let's see how your hospitality is. No, hospitality would have meant something different back then. It would have meant uh, helping people who, because of their profession of faith in Jesus, faced having no homes maybe, being kicked out of the home, being ha having no jobs, and therefore having no one else to turn to. And therefore these church leaders need to be people who, who are willing to welcome others in and provide for them in self-sacrificial ways. So in relationships with others, uh, these people need to be loving in practical, self-sacrificial ways. So, relationships with others, and then, well, about self-control. Well, self-control is a big deal in the letter. Paul mentions it several times, not just for church leaders, but for everyone to, to grow in. Uh, and it summarises several of the things on the list here. So, verse 7, uh, it talks about church leaders not being quick-tempered, uh, not given to drunkenness, not violent. And then in verse 8 says, uh, they must be self-controlled. Uh, and that's in a culture where, as you read on in the letter, it seems like people weren't being self-controlled in the culture around them. And that's true for us as well, isn't it? The expectation often is that on a Friday night after a hard week of work, that people will go out and get drunk. Or uh, it can be expected that when you go to a party that you will drink too much. But Paul says, actually, Christians shouldn't be like that. Church leaders shouldn't be like that. We need to be self-controlled. And self-controlled as well when things are going wrong for us. Because that's often the time when we get stressed and when maybe we're likely to get angry. And Paul says, we've got to be self-controlled then as well. Not quick-tempered. Uh, Rico Tice, who's uh, a minister in the middle of London, um, I remember him saying that a ministry can be ruined in a matter of seconds. Just one angry outburst, and that can ruin a ministry. And he's right. We need to learn to be self-controlled, because there'll be plenty of opportunity to show self-control. Because church leaders do sometimes get people saying nasty things about them or sending them nasty emails, and the temptation is to fire back in kind. But a church leader needs to be self-controlled. Well, there's lots we can't get into. Uh, many more things on that list. Uh, but we're going to go down to verse 9 now and, and see what it says about how they need to hold on to the truth. So verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Well, that must mean that church leaders need to know the trustworthy message. They've got to know the truth and understand it. But more than that, they've got to hold firmly to it. They've got to have a good grip, got to hold on to the truth. And they've got to do that to encourage people with sound doctrine and to be able to refute those who oppose it. Those who disagree with the sound doctrine, they've got to be able to say, actually, that is wrong, what you believe and what maybe you're teaching and what you're believing. And that, there are temptations for church leaders in this. Sometimes when coming up to preach, knowing that something's going to be controversial, maybe just shading it in such a way that, well, the truth doesn't quite get told in an upfront kind of way. 
knowing who's in the congregation and therefore shaping the message in a way that you shouldn't. No, church leaders need to be people who will hold firmly to the truth, whether it's popular or unpopular. Can't be preaching for the applause of others, but to encourage people with sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So, where does that list leave us? Well, there's a danger that having looked at a list like that, we just feel crushed. Because we can look at it and we can think there's a lot there that isn't me. And you might think if you're not a Christian, well, this is what I thought Christianity was about. It's about being good. And I don't think I'm that. Well, it's important that we take this passage in the context of the whole letter. Because the whole letter uh, does focus a lot on godly living. But it tells us how to go about doing this. And, and it's not just try harder, be better. No, uh, Paul tells us how we can go about living a godly life. And so to end the sermon, I want to take you to chapter 3 and verses 3 to 8 to read that out. This is so important. It says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Well, now that's an encouragement in some ways, isn't it? It's saying we were all like this. There are none of us who had this sorted, you know, right from birth. We've, we've all given in to sinful passions and, and pleasures. But Paul says, verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Well, I want to encourage you later on to go back and reread that because there's so much in it. But Paul is saying, you're a Christian if you've been washed by God, by the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Saviour, because of his death for you, not because of your goodness, but because of what he's done. But then notice what he goes on to say, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. See, it's always this way round. Get saved first, come to Jesus, be washed clean so that you can go and live a good life, so that you can be devoted to good things, to being self-controlled. Uh, and to living all those things out that we thought about earlier. Be safe first, then devote yourself to good things. And so what's Titus to look for? I mean, he's not to look for those who just naturally never found these things a problem, the things in the list, but rather he's to look for someone whose life has been transformed by the gospel of grace. And that is where we're to turn to grow in godliness it is to look to the gospel of God's grace. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray please for all of us that you would help us to grow in godliness as we come to the truth, the truth of the gospel of grace. May that gospel sink more deeply into our hearts and change the way we live. Amen. <laughs>